And I'm back again today on this episode of Beyond the Genetics. Today, my guest is Dr. Amarachi. She's a medical doctor, a writer, a public speaker. And then this is the most important part. She's also a very good friend of mine. Uh, (laughs) Welcome to Beyond the Genetics. I'm so excited that you are here. I'm very happy that you agreed to do this. Oh, I'm so excited to be here as well. Hi, Vier. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing good. It's a good day. So, and it's a podcast day. So, <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to give like a background of our relationship and how we got to this point. So, Amarachi and I met uh 2000 and it's in 19 or 18 now. I don't really know what year was 2019. 19. So, we met at a plastic surgery hospital where I was working permanently at the time. And she came in as a locum to cover for a colleague who had gone on leave. And yes, that's how our relationship started. I don't really think that we started off as friends. I think it was more of like a cordial working relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then as time went on, we now became friends, which brought us to this point. And I'm just... Thankful for that whole experience. Oh, it <laughs> <into> friendship. How <laughs> <laughs> would you say like our relationship was like when we're working? How's working relationship? How would you just like describe that moment? I'd say initially it was really professional. And even when it was just like really professional, we had this mutual respect for each other. I think... Yeah. Working with you as well as the other doctors mm-hmm. at the plastic surgery hospital was just, well, I use the word wholesome because it was just so easy. If you need someone to cover your shift, the person is always there to cover your shift. If you need someone to, even though it was professional initially, then it was really easy for us to become friends because I think we had the same kind of ideas and thoughts yeah. and the same work ethics everybody was coming late um early sorry <laughs> um, <laughs> why did i say late oh my I god <laughs> everyone was coming early nobody complained about anything basically i mean it was refreshing i liked it yeah i definitely can relate to that and i feel like i have the same experience of what you just described as well I'm making it a habit to sort of like ask the doctors that come on my show because I'm really interested in knowing people's answer. Maybe because I haven't kind of figured my answer yet, but why did you choose Mm -hmm. medicine? Why did you choose to become a doctor? Like why? What's your reason behind all of that? The truth is I've always wanted to make an impact. I've always felt that that's my mission on earth, like to make an impact. But I didn't know how to go about it. I didn't know in what field I'll make the impact. Then I think when I got to high school, I started tending towards the sciences. And then I think I did a little bit of research and I decided, okay, medicine. I don't think there's any personal story per se, but it was just more of finding my path. I think I just always felt that I needed to do more, do something. And then I realized at some point that health 
medicine is what I wanted to do, where I wanted to make an impact. Like you said, making an impact, regardless of how stressful medicine can be, you actually do mm-hmm. make an impact while you're working and your interaction with people, the people that you meet. Sometimes you just really touch people's lives, even by the yeah. little thing that you do that day can just make someone's life different and better. So it's a good path to take if you are thinking about making a change. But it just comes with its own plenty wahala shabo. We are so <laughs> Yeah. So now you are into fertility and you've been in this like specialty as a fertility physician for a while now, I believe. Mm. I just want to know, like, why did you decide to like venture into fertility? From what we've had discussions and just how I've seen you from afar and up close and all of that, I know that you are very interested in this. It's something that you are quite passionate about. So why did you choose fertility? And then is being a fertility physician, is it a pathway to something else? Or you feel like this is it, like you found your bearing? Well, I chose fertility because there's not enough awareness on fertility. And I do a lot of creating awareness online on health-related issues, women-related issues as well. So Mm -hmm. I realized that fertility is not the right information. We don't have a lot of them out there. Because, I mean, I think I was on Facebook one day and then I saw some of these trying to conceive groups and then I saw a lot of false information, a lot of wrong information. And I'm like, nobody. And because fertility is something that in our society, the women get really desperate. So they listen to every information that passes by them. So I'm like, I need to put the right information out there so they don't end up harming themselves. Yeah. So I decided to go into fertility medicine. In fact, from the beginning, I loved everything about fertility medicine and I didn't even waste time to start creating the awareness out there. So you asked if this is a pathway to something else. If this is a pathway to something else, yeah. Okay, so yes, it is. Because like in Nigeria, you can do the subspecialty, which is fertility medicine, before you start your OBGYN, that's the obstetrics and gynecology. So yes, Mm -hmm. it's a pathway to that because that's what I like want to do. I mean, to actually do the whole obstetrics and gynecology, everything is connected, is interrelated. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah fertility medicine good. is actually a subspecialty of obstetrics and Obst gynecology. And gyne. Okay. Yeah. That sounds really nice. I've never really been like an obstetrics and fan, honestly. I oh, just wow. it's just a specialty that I don't like. But I don't hate as well, but I just can't do it. <laughs> it's, just in that box. it's just in that box right there with ophthalmology. Ophthalmology is even in a separate box that I can't even think about it. But <laughs> if it sort of happen and I sort of like just see myself doing it, okay. But ophthalmology, no way. Like it can't, not even mistake that. For real? I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> the whole betting process and the whole like, I think it's the obstetric part of it that, you know, mm-hmm. really does, I can't, I don't want to do. I think more of the gynae, I don't so mind the gynae part of it, but the obstetric part, it takes a lot to just be in that whole specialty. 
props yeah, for it does really. all the fertility physicians. That's really. <laughs> I think that one of the things that we connected on, which you sort of like kind of mentioned in when you were describing your love for fertility, was um your your love for giving back, which is one of the things that I feel and not I feel, I know that we have in common is our community service, our love for community work, our love for voluntary and just sort of like making an impact in the community, in the work that we do. I can remember that we had, we did an outreach together where we spoke on cervical cancer. Do you remember? Yes, I yes. do, of course. <laughs> I still have those pictures. I know, and the videos I spoke to those um, and, um, high school children on cervical cancer. And yeah. that was a good moment in our friendship as well and took us further than True. that part of actually being that We had that same interest in just being a part of things like that. So now you're now doing that with your fertility and you have a YouTube channel, a platform. So can you just tell us about your YouTube channel, your platform, the things that you're doing and, you know, just the whole package? Okay. So my YouTube channel focuses on everything and anything, women's health and infertility. So I try to upload at least one or two videos at least one video per week. And I feel like if you have like any fertility question in your head, I, I have probably already done a video on that. So the channel name is Dr. Amarachi Ijoma. And I think I started the channel 1st of January this year because yeah. in the past, what I was doing was just posting articles on LinkedIn really regularly for three years. And then a little bit on Instagram, but then I decided, okay, let me take it up a notch and go post on YouTube so I can reach more audience. So, yeah, it's all about creating awareness, quelling misconceptions on infertility, women's health. So that's basically what it's about. I won't say it publicly, and I hope that I have said it privately as well. It's just how proud I am of you. Of I remember when you were talking about doing this, and you were like, "Oh, I want to start a YouTube channel." And when your first video dropped, I watched it, and I was like, it's "Great!" And it's going to be something amazing. So I just want to say that yeah. I'm really proud of you for what you've done and you you are on and how far you've come. And I just know that you're going to do more amazing things. And so everyone listening, check out her channel. Check it out, check it out, check it out. It's quite amazing. And it has a lot (laughs) of information on it. So, yeah. Thank Uh, you so much. I'm so proud of you too, Dr. Ivy. Ah, thank you. Why do you ask me, Dr. Ivy? (laughs) Why do you ask me, Dr. Ivy? I'm all professional. Okay. Like the same All right. I mean, I started with EVA, then I'm like, okay, it's her podcast. So, no, come EVA. Like, it's just like, <laughs> even outside here, when people are like, Dr. EVA, I'm like, oh, just come EVA. You don't have to be all you know, just professional about it. Just come EVA. Okay. That's, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine then. Well, I'm so proud of your growth as well because I know when you. All of this was an idea and now it's like a reality. So I'm yeah. so happy for your growth. Thank you. I still remember when we were talking about it. I was talking about starting my foundation. You were talking about your YouTube channel. Yeah. 
giving back your community service, your voluntary. Have you ever been involved with anything like sickle cell related, like sickle cell outreach or whatever it is, even if it's just like in your medical career, have you been involved with sickle cell patients? Have you managed one? So it's, this is like yeah. a two-part question, but yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah, in my medical career, yes, I've managed a few sickle cell anemic patients. I have. Mm-hmm. Mostly they come in with pain that's the crisis and then what we have to do is try to stabilize the patients give them fluids and painkillers and most times within sometimes within 24 hours they are good to go home i have so how would you say that the management medical management of sickle cell patients is in nigeria like the hospital that you worked in, how was the management, how in terms of painkiller and other forms of management, how would you say? Because you hear of stories where people, sick cell patients go to hospitals, they don't have oxygen, they're being given suboptimal medications and sometimes they're just being overlooked as far, oh, you can't be in that much pain and all those kind of things, horrible things that you hear in terms of management. So how would you say, the management is in Nigeria, and how would you say the management was at that hospital that you worked in? Okay, so the hospital I worked in was a private hospital. I think it was a pediatric hospital, and we used to have like a couple of sickle cell patients come in. And sometimes when we do the normal stabilization, if they don't get better, if there's no mm-hmm. improvement in the pain. Most times we invite a hematologist and then the hematologist takes over the treatment. So, and we always had oxygen. I think we did a pretty good job there. So if you are actually finding it difficult to get a hospital that, or if you are currently using a hospital that you feel they are not doing like the best that you feel like they can do, then you should consider getting a second opinion in another hospital because there are hospitals in Nigeria that are really doing well. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree. I totally agree with that. And the whole fact of bringing in an, a hematologist is very important because sometimes people don't do that, especially when you've gotten yeah. to a point where you can no longer accurately manage them adequately. To bring exactly. in a hematologist that this is what they specialize in, so they'll be able to sort of like manage better and... Yeah. Just make it better because it's just really horrible when you hear some stories and it's so bad to leave someone in that situation and just being like, oh, there's nothing else you can do. So you're going about your day. Like It's so, so yeah. bad. When I hear those stories, it's honestly just breaks my heart True. because you just don't think that this can happen to anyone. It can honestly happen to anyone. And just the fact that I consider myself fortunate in just with my whole experience with sickle cell, I consider myself fortunate. It doesn't take away the fact that this is happening out there. And that is why mm-hmm. like being into things sickle cell foundation is just a way of creating awareness to make sure that the lives of warriors are better. Their family's lives are better because it affects every single person. It affects the family, it affects the friends, it affects like yeah. the general. And it touches everybody. So having to spread this awareness and just make people know that 
it's not about pretending. Like, I'm not coming here to come and it's not always about drug seeking behavior. My pain is real. My pain is existence. Like, I'm, these tears are real. And just pay attention yeah. to give me what I need, give me the right treatment, and let me go home because I don't even want to be here. So, it's nice and I, I like it when I hear of hospitals because I know a lot of private hospitals really try to work with their management and a lot of them are doing really, really good jobs as well. So yes. um, I know about that because I've worked in a private hospital before and they did a really good job managing sickle cell patients. Do you That's have a personal experience with sickle cell disease? Yeah, I do. A family friend, she's almost like in fact she's like a sister why did i go almost like a sister to me and ah man there's sometimes she was in university at some point when i was already working as a doctor she's still in university she's a younger friend and i would invite her i would tell her to fly all the way back to lagos and would go to a hospital just for the crisis. Yeah. I mean, Wait, you know, so like you said. To Lagos in pain? Not in pain. They'll stabilize her, then she'll fly oh, to yeah. Lagos. Yeah, because at some point, she felt like getting treatment in Lagos is better than over there. Like you rightly said, it's not something that only the person is experiencing. The family, the friends, every other person is on the journey with them. Yeah, that's my experience too. Yeah, I can imagine how, just how worried or how stressed you'd be, like someone calling you from another state and just being like, I'm in pain, I'm in the hospital. Do you get, so you, you feel like, you feel helpless all the way, mm-hmm. like you're not in the same state with the person. So it's, yeah. it's not, yeah. And your mind just sort of like times everything the person is saying by 10 or by 100. The person's like, True. Oh, you're like, oh my God, she can't breathe. She can't do this. Oh, oh, what are they doing? What are they? Goodness. I can't even imagine being in that spot. Like I have been in the spot of, I've actually been in both spots though, as the patient, as the relative and as the doctor. So I've, I've sort of like covered wow. every angle that <laughs> yeah because i remember a time because i have a sister that had sickle cell and i remember a time that she called me and she was just telling me her symptoms and just a lot of things that were going on and i was just so worried because i wasn't there although she was in a good place and you know they were taking care of her but it still doesn't take away the worry of you know what is happening what would happen especially when it's just different when you are in medicine and everything just starts. It's like, you know how they be like, oh, what's the diagnosis and what's the differential diagnosis? You start making a list in your head of all the possible things that could go wrong and you're just driving yourself crazy. Like, oh my goodness, yeah. could it be this, could it be that, could it be that? And you just end up in mm. like, this whole state of helplessness and just in complete pain, not actual pain, but like pain from someone you Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just hope that things get better no, because it shouldn't be just private hospitals, some private hospitals that are doing a good job. It should be a um, thing. Everybody should, people should feel safe going to the hospital. Sickle cell patients should be attended to. But I hope that mm-hmm. things get better. And I can hope 
that you know this podcast is able to educate people and bring light into a lot of things that have been in sort of like a darkness. So in your medical career so far, in your whether it's pertaining to your present specialty being working in fertility or just throughout your medical career, is there any particular case or any patient that has impacted your life in a way, any case that has made a difference in your life or any patient that you have attended to that sort of just impacted you, touched you or changed things? Do you have that experience? Yes, I do. When I worked uh, loose, I had a cancer patient and she was going through severe pains Mm -hmm. and she was really positive about it throughout, throughout. Mm-hmm. And she was so warm and amazing. Yeah, she passed on. But even to the last day, I was on duty and she was still positive. Like she knew she was going to pass on somehow, but she was just really saying really positive things. And I'm like, if someone in this extreme pain can yeah. be this positive, you know, how much more? Like, I was really, really, really so inspired by her. It was one of the most touching experiences I've had since I started working as a doctor. Yeah, I can honestly, I can relate to that. And my own experience is so similar to what you've given. Mine was in a private hospital I was working and I had this patient, a pediatric patient and... You know, she had cancer. I think it was osteosarcoma. And, you know, like it was just, she was, because she's late now, may her so rest in peace. She was, mm-hmm. you know, such a light, despite everything that was going on around her and what she was going through and what the next stage she had to take. She was such a light. She was smiling. She just lived like, she didn't have any problem at that point. So it just makes you look at things differently. Like if someone having so much on their shoulders and yet they're able to still bring this light into the lives of the people around them, then that is definitely something that just makes you take a second look. And my experience is similar to yours and Every day I just remember that whole moment and that whole time. And I'm like, this is a way to, it's just a way to just not always carry your problem. Is it on your face now, on your shoulder? Or where, where is it? I think it's shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, on your face, like everybody knows that you have problems. <laughs> I just need to be a light, really. Like, just continue as much as possible. Continue to yeah. be like, despite what your personal life may look like, because you don't know who you are going to touch, whose life you're going to impact, and the person you're going to make feel better. So, this is a, a general question. What would you say your scariest moments or one of your scariest moments in life has been so far? Well, this is one question that feels like I'm on the spot. <laughs> But if I have to think like I'm on the spot, which I obviously am, Mm -hmm. I would say my final year 
results in medical school. Yeah. And this is because I schooled in the East where they speak mostly Igbo. Okay. And I'm not really, I don't really understand the language. So <laughs> the exam had a lot of Igbo patients. You know how you have real patients yeah. Yeah, during, the, during the exams. And I couldn't speak the language. And I just kept communicating in English to old women and old men that could speak only Igbo. And I honestly thought that would affect my results. Yeah. Because, yeah. But when it was time to, like, collect my results, I was, that was the scariest moment <laughs> of my life. But I passed. So we thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. You know this story you just said during my MD saying, like the whole Nigerian medical exam, you know, because I didn't school in Nigeria, I had to come and do a course and then take the exam. So during the exam, one of my patients was a lady. I don't know if she was acting, I don't know if it was real, but I just felt like <laughs> it was, this has to be real. Like, I don't know. I don't think the lady could speak English. And it's Lagos. I can't speak Yoruba. Do you understand? And I'm just there, like, what am I going to do? See, I just started speaking pidgin. <laughs> I just went up to pidgin. I was like, ah, wait and bring you, like, oh, oh, And I was just, like, demonstrating and touching and, like, is he here, not here, all those things. I, I was like, goodness, I have definitely failed this station. And if you just four stations... <laughs> And I filmed one. My God. <laughs> my, God. <laughs> my God. My God. My God. And she, I think she was either the first or second person I had to attend to. So I had to take that anxiety from that patient into the next. But I just had to get myself together and, you know, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. Oh, too. my hmm. You just have to forget the anxiety <laughs> from the previous session. <laughs> And just move on, like, just move on. Ah, But one of my scariest moments of, I would say, like, if I'm to pick, I think I've had quite a number of scariest moments, but if I'm to pick one, it would be, like, during my house job, my medical internship, that was, I did mine in St. Nicholas Hospital, and I was on call. So, you know, on call, we worked from, is it 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. the next day or something like that. And yeah. um, so I was on call with this. We had two house of sales, me and someone else, and then two, you know, a bit more senior doctors. And everything was going well. I was attending to my patients. I was doing my thing. And I was preparing my hand over, you know, because we had morning meeting every morning to discuss the patients that are on the ward, how they are doing, and then the new patients and, you know, consultant just bombard you with questions. And sometimes you're just looking like, who sent me to do this medicine work? And then, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what I was doing. I was trying to do my handover. And then the next thing, I just noticed that I could not breathe any longer. You know, it felt as though someone had, you know how you put a a cover on a bottle? So I felt like my trachea had a cover on it and I honestly could not breathe like it was just a sudden experience I couldn't breathe I was honestly you know I've had so many cell crises but that is one of them that has scared me because 
you know, obviously they rushed me to the emergency emergency ward in the hospital, and then my sats were okay. You know, vital signs. Yeah, yeah. My vital signs were okay, but I couldn't remember what the other ones. But I knew my oxygen saturation was okay, but it still put me on oxygen. But I still couldn't breathe because I wasn't taking enough air in. Like I felt like someone was choking. Yeah. Covered my trachea, and I just remember lying down there and. There were three people that came to my mind at that time. It was, you know, my mom and my sisters. It was one of my friends then in house job, my very good friend, I couldn't die, a sister, and someone else. There were just those three people that came to my mind, and I was like, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? Because you know how my oxygen saturation was low? I don't know, maybe it would have felt better that, okay, you know, maybe I'm not getting enough oxygen, but my oxygen saturation was fine. So I'm like, why can I not breathe? Because obviously, like, I'm not breathing. I'm really, really not breathing. There's no air going oh. into. There's no. So I was really scared of that fact that, okay, oxygen is looking fine. But I know that I am not breathing. Like, I know. That's so scary. I was so scared. I was frightened. My sisters were not around and my mom, because I did my house job in Lagos, I grew up in Wari. My mom was in Delta State. Had no idea what was happening because this happened either very late in the night or very early hours of the morning, like maybe one o'clock. And I just did not know. I'm like, is this going to be it? Like, this is one, that was one of the, of my crisis experience that I felt like, is this going to be it? Like, I was just really scared. And I remember after a while, you know, things just sort of like normalized and I was able to have some sleep and my breathing was feeling a bit better. Thank God. I'm used to a lot of, you know, sickle cell crisis experience. Like if it's my chest and if I was having chest pain, I honestly wasn't even having chest pain. I wasn't like, Oh, I'm having like acute chest syndrome or I wasn't having chest pain. It was just that this air is not entering and I don't know why it's not entering and I don't know why I cannot breathe properly. And I just remember everything normalizing and I woke up in the morning. Actually, my friend had come to see me and I don't know if she touched me or but I just opened my eyes and I saw her and I felt really, I felt really relieved and I felt really happy. Like, okay, wow. I've gone through this like, stage and I'm out of the woods. And yeah, that was wow. my scariest experience. And in that whole process, I was just thinking about my family and if anything happens. Oh my goodness. I my God. Oh my God, I'm oh my so sorry. I'm crying again. <laughs> I'm so sorry. This is so scary. Yeah, I know. Because even in that whole moment, it was just my family. I was thinking about, like, if anything happens to me, I don't know how, you know, they'll be able to just move on from that whole thing. Like, how they'll be able to get over it and, you know. Oh, goodness. Okay, that's what I want to do. You need to take a deep breath at this point. I'm so <laughs> sorry. I'm crying. And- yes. I drink water. <laughs> yeah. I'm, so... I'm not going to be crying on every podcast episode because I need to no. <laughs> no, but I feel like it's okay if you want to cry. Knowing that we're going to have this, because in the foundation, sometimes we have talks and presentations and just like online conferences and things like that. 
And one of the questions that always just come up is about sickle cell, fertility, pregnancy, cell in the cell worry and things like that. So what yeah. I did was that I have asked members of my foundation, as well as just opening it to general public to send in um, sickle cell related questions and just general fertility questions, because why not? We are here. We answer them. Yeah. But some of them may that I because I read through some of them and um I saw that some of them sort of overlap with obstetric and gynae, um, which we talked about earlier that you know fertility is a subspecialized subspecialty on the obstetric and gynae. So we try and answer as many as possible, or she would try and answer as many as possible because I don't think I can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm gonna start with the first one. Uh so the first one says. It says, how do sickle cell patients deal with crisis in pregnancy as opioids are usually contraindicated in pregnancy? Are opioids really contraindicated in pregnancy? Because as far as I know, none of the analgesics have been found to increase risk of major malformations. Hmm. Although caution should be used when prescribing them in late pregnancy. So there are like two categories of analgesics you can use. You can use opioids, actually, and you can also use non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. You can even also use your normal Tylenol, paracetamol sort of medications. But it's just when you are getting to the late pregnancy, third trimester, you want to be really careful with, with the dosage you use in um, third trimester of some opioids. So it's like when you use codeine, in third trimester, even when you're using the therapeutic dose, it yeah. could affect the newborn, it could affect the neonates, that it could affect the newborn in the first 28 days. So it can the newborn can start having like withdrawal symptoms from the codeine. So it's not really advisable to use that one in last in the third trimester. But every other medication can actually be used. So yeah, I think it's a thing of you know um, benefit at where the risk situation because exactly um, I'm not sure what the percentage is, but I know that the percentage is quite small in terms of having opioid interfere with with the baby, whether during pregnancy or during um breastfeeding, because yeah. I know that it, a certain amount of um codeine sort of seeps into the breast milk and things yeah. like. That. I, I believe that the percentage is small. So it would just be, okay, a discussion between the patient and the, the, doctor. And the doctor managing to just see yeah. the situation, assess the situation. And, you know, if the benefits are played the risks, then... Because of fear about the use of painkillers during pregnancy, hmm. some sickle cell pregnant women would rather like endure the pain than treat the pain and when you do that you're at risk of under treatment you get and if you are not being treated well if you're not managing the pain well that pain when it's not properly treated can be associated with hypertension anxiety depression none of which is conducive to a healthy pregnancy so being aware that painkillers are actually not contraindicated as you can actually use them in pregnancy is really key. Yeah, because for me, if I put myself in that situation where someone tells me, 
there's a percentage to if I give you this medication, it can affect your child or whatever. I would definitely just not most <laughs> let me not say definitely because <laughs> you know <sometimes> but... <laughs> you say something and then you're in this situation and it's a totally different thing you get. Yeah. But right now, just thinking about it, it would be a no-brainer for me to say, you know, I don't want anything to happen to my child and I'd rather just take something milder like paracetamol or just use something like paracetamol than actually going for those medications, even though I'm at a point where it's a pain where those medications are needed. I'm the kind of person that would opt out of them. Okay. Yeah. Now, the next question is, is priapism dangerous to fertility, to the fertility of a male warrior? Can it be stopped permanently or is there any temporary relief for it? So if you can just give a background of what priapism is, basically it's just um, like sustained erection that is not yeah. sexual stimulation and it's painful. So Okay, so you just gave a background information on priapism. Yeah, I know. I was going to ask and... you to and I just found myself. <laughs> yeah, but thank you for doing it. <laughs> yeah, but what you should also understand is that, like if you said, it's not necessarily as a result of sexual stimulation. Sometimes it can the penis can be erect for other reasons. Normally, how an erect penis works is when the penis is stimulated psychologically or physically, like by touch. There's blood flow into the penis that makes it erect. And then when that stimulation goes, like when the stimulation ends, the blood flows out of the penis and then the penis returns back to its non-erect form. So in preaprism, what happens is after there's stimulation or no stimulation, blood just decided to flow into the penis. It stays there, it's trapped there and cannot leave the penis. You end up getting an erect penis for greater than four hours and this can cause really severe pain in the ischemic type. There are two different types. And then the ones that are commonly seen in sickle cell warriors are is the recurrent one. It's sort of ischemic priapism, like the one I just spoke about. And it's because the red cells in sickle cell is sickled, the shape. So it can block the vessels in the penis and prevent, it traps the blood and prevents the blood from leaving. It's, it's recurrent. It occurs really, it gives like several episodes. And when this happens, because when the blood is trapped in the penis, there's no oxygen getting to the tissues in the penis and it can damage or destroy the tissues in the penis and can cause erectile dysfunction. So you asked if it is dangerous to male fertility. Well, erectile dysfunction can make it difficult or impossible to have sexual intercourse. It's not like it directly causes male infertility, but it is often seen in conjunction with each other because of the inability to even have sexual intercourse at all. So, and then you ask for a temporary relief. Yes, yeah, it's there, permanently, or is there any temporary relief for it? Well, why it can't be stopped permanently per se is because as a warrior, your red cells are sickled. 
So there's still like a chance that it will happen again due to blockage as a result of the sickle cell. So there's a temporary relief for it, like um, it's because it's an emergency, apparently. So yeah. you have to immediately go to a hospital and then the doctor would drain out with a syringe and a needle, drain out the trapped blood and give some painkillers and fluid. And sometimes if after this treatment, there's no improvement, a surgeon can come and then change the route of the blood flow in the penis. So, oh, that sounds like yeah. a lot. Okay. The next question says, what does pregnancy in a cell warrior look like? Um, I understand it's high-risk pregnancy. What are the things to expect in a sickle cell pregnancy? Mm, some women with sickle cell anemia, some sickle cell warriors can have a healthy pregnancy. Like from the beginning to the end, like to delivery, a healthy pregnancy. But as a warrior, you're more likely than other women to have health complications that can affect your pregnancy. Complications like pain episodes, infections, and vision problems. The pain episodes may happen more often. They can last like a few hours to days to weeks. And as a warrior, so there's also like this increased chance of premature birth and low birth weights in pregnancy. But there are warriors that have like really healthy, uneventful pregnancies from onset to delivery. Yeah. Does the constant sickling affect the male and female reproductive organs? Yes, it can affect male reproductive organs. But very little is known about how it affects female reproductive organs. Mm. Infertility in men that are warriors have been studied more frequently than infertility in women. Because they've not really seen like significant cases of infertility in female sickle cell warriors. So they are focusing more on the males. Like 24% of men with sickle cell disease may develop a condition called hypogonadism. Is that just the condition that is associated with low testosterone production, infertility, erectile dysfunction, poor libido? And then they've also noticed sperm abnormalities in male warriors, like low sperm counts, low sperm density, the sperm not being able to move really fast, then maybe with abnormal shape, like the sperm has a particular shape but they've noticed like abnormal shapes in male warriors. Although it's important to note that male sickle cell warriors with sperm abnormalities have been fathering children. So studies are yet to determine the clinical importance of abnormal sperm analysis and its impact on male fertility in male sickle cell warriors. So, But in female warriors, like most studies haven't really been carried out. Yeah, the studies is limited. And the only thing that I saw a study where they talked about increase in sickle cell disease-related pain during menstruation, that was like the only significant thing they talked about, the relationship of sickle cell with reproductive organ. So, okay. so in terms of um, a sickle cell patient now having fertility issues, 
What fertility assisted options is available to sickle cell patients? Well, almost everything that is available for non-sickle cell patients is available for sickle cell warriors as well. It's just the fertility physician has to work hand in hand with the hematologist. So you can do ovulation induction, as we give medications to stimulate production of egg, mature egg, and then we tell you you're going to have sexual intercourse with your spouse. And we also there's also the option of intrauterine insemination and in vitro fertilization, that's IVF. But we have to work hand in hand with the hematologist because some of the medications used in these procedures have a side effect of blood clotting, pulmonary embolism. And you know, sickle cell anemia itself, their risk of forming blood clots as a complication of sickle cell normally. So if we have to use medications that have that side effect, it could increase the chances. So in a case like this, we want to work with the hematologist. So she... The hematologist would most likely prescribe medications that will prevent clotting and then monitor closely as well. So, and then we will use, we will use like minimal doses of those medications. Not, we won't necessarily use like the same dosage, but like I said, it's not the same for every patient. It depends on the go ahead given by the hematologist. So is there a limit to how much fertility treatment that a warrior can get? Well, I wouldn't say there's a limit. Like I said, treatment is individualized. If, as a warrior, you've had a previous history of blood clots, like pulmonary embolism, then yes, there's a limit, sort of, because we can't be doing the same thing we do for somebody that has never had that history before or somebody that is not prone to that. So it's, like I said, treatment is individualized. I can't put a cap on it. It depends on your history. Yeah. Okay, so is there any medicine or things that a warrior can do in their own personal life or to just improve fertility and their chance of a full-time pregnancy? Well, I think what they can do is not have unplanned pregnancies. Okay. Because pregnancy on its own increases your chance, whether you're a warrior or not, increases your chance of forming blood clots because we describe it as a hypercoagulable state. So you don't want to have an unplanned pregnancy. You want to plan the pregnancy with your hematologist, with your gynecologist. This would actually give a better prognosis because then they start managing you from the onset of conception. So it's close monitoring, if they have to check your blood levels as often as they want to, they'll do that. More ultrasound scans than a non-warrior, you know, and all of those things can give you, like, increase your chances of carrying pregnancy to term and having, like, an uneventful pregnancy, like multidisciplinary approach to management and starting early. You mean like starting your pregnancy planning early? or Early, yeah. Yeah, like when I mean early, I mean 
you are involving your doctors from okay. the initial from the get go. Yeah. From the get go. So, are the female reproductive hormones are they usually affected in sickle cell patients? Well, there's like I said, studies are limited with regards to this, but there was a study that showed that a subpopulation of women, like a few, just like a small section of women, had increased with increased um, sickle cell disease related pain during or any part of the menstrual cycle, that it was as a result of fluctuation in the levels of estrogen and progesterone. But they didn't talk much about this. Like, we need to do more research when it comes to women, really. Yeah, I guess, I don't know, maybe (laughs) they've seen that in terms of like sickle cell patients, it seems to be less affected in women. Yes, yes. There have been many successful pregnancies with sickle cell warriors. So, yeah. mm-hmm. Even in my practice, I've seen a lot of success than I have seen yeah. on the other end of it. Like you said, it's just, you know, start your pregnancy planning early with your team of doctors, your hematologists, your gynae, and just everybody. You know, yeah. So that you do the writings, you're able to just follow through and... So I think you've answered this question, though. It's about if, you know, the disease affects the sperm counts. I know you said it. Yeah. The, the motility. The motility, the count, density, the shape, it does affect it. Is it common? It is quite common. I can't categorically give a statistics, but I know it's more than average. Hmm. Yeah, for sperm abnormality. And I also added that but people, men, warriors with sperm abnormalities have been reported to have children, to father children. So we can't really, the studies are not really conclusive as to how it affects, yes, men. So during a sickle cell crisis, is it normal to experience delay in menstruation? And also, do sickle cell patients tend to have, like, um, abnormal menstruations and just things involving the whole puberty and menstruation yeah. process. Yeah, you can have like delay in menstruation because the crisis is a form of stress to the body and distress from pain can throw your hormones off balance. It can even affect the part of your brain that is responsible for regulating your period. Yeah, it can cause a delay in menstruation. It can also cause either prolonged duration or short duration of your period. Okay. Just the same way stress would do that. Yeah. What are the common facility problems, preventions, and treatment? I think we probably answered most of this anyways. But so I'm just yes. going to leave it as what are the common fertility problems? Common fertility problems in sickle cell like, patients, yeah. Okay. Just like what I explained, it's can cause a condition called hypogonadism that causes that's associated with low testosterone production, infertility, erectile dysfunction, and then the sperm abnormalities as well. Yeah. But for females, I really can't say. So would you say like the process of pregnancy is dangerous to a warrior and the whole underlying physiology of how a sickle cell patient's body just functions? Well, well, 
like I said, I can't generalize this because for some people it's just like a walk in the park. It's uneventful. But warriors are at risk of more health complications than non-warriors. And this is because pregnancy, like I said, a hypercoagulable condition. This means that it's pregnancy on its own can increase your chances of blood clots. So when this happens, there's like an increased chance of crisis in every part of the body. So there are more pain episodes and yeah. The question was if it's like high risk for them, right? Yeah, if the process is dangerous and sickle cell Yeah, so yeah, that's basically for some people, yeah, it's because of the increased risk of crisis and health complications. Okay. And I think in one of the questions that you were answering, you talked about involvement of sight and vision. So what are the chances of a warrior going blind from, you know, pregnancy? Okay. So I'm not aware of any increased chance of visual problems with pregnancy because sickle cell anemia on its own has a complication of visual problems because of the sickle cells can block tiny blood vessels that supply the eye. So over time, it can damage the eye and lead to blindness. I don't know if during pregnancy this is increased. I'm not aware, actually, if it is increased during pregnancy. What my advice would be for this question is just get your regular checkup, even just not yeah. pertaining to pregnancy. Now, as a sickle cell patient, you should get a regular checkup, your general assessment of how your health is, and check your eyes regularly because you know the disease affects the eyes. So you need to see your ophthalmologist, and they need to look into your eyes because even if there are changes, if you catch it early, it doesn't. You can there are procedures you can do to stop the changes. There are things you can change and just catching something early is also always better than catching it late. So just get regular checkup. Check your eyes, check your body, be aware of what's going on in your body and be intentional and be deliberate about the things that are happening in your body and things that concern your health. That's it. Yeah. What would your advice to a sickle cell patient who wants to undergo fertility treatments or would you is it advisable for a sickle cell patient to undergo fertility treatments? Yes, it is. Like, well, let me not say it is because I won't be the one to advise. I think your hematologist will be the one to advise you on whether you should go for fertility treatments. And if you come to me without having clearance from your hematologist, I would refer you back to your hematologist because I'll need to go ahead. Yeah. And I'll need to work hand in hand with the hematologist. So it all depends on your history. Sickle cell patients have done IVF, like they do IVF. They are not as common as non-warriors, but yes, they do IVF. And it's been successful. That was the last question and I believe that we have come to the end of this episode of Beyond the Genetics. So the general thing you should take from this episode is just be aware of your health, go for your regular checkup, 
check what needs to be checked and just be in a general knowledge of everything that's going on with you and your body and consult with all parts of your medical team. So, Dr. Amarchi, thank you so much for being here. I will urge everyone that is listening to please check out her YouTube channel. She's doing such amazing work. And you can follow her on Instagram. What's your Instagram handle? Dr. Underscore Amarachi with a double I. Okay, so follow her on Instagram. You can also follow Little Cell of Mine on Instagram. I think that is Elcom Underscore Foundation. That's the name of our Instagram yeah. page. And I look forward to having you tune in again to listen. And have a good day. Bye. Bye.